0: Behind the Bite Podcast is part of a network of podcasts that are good for the world. Check out podcasts like The Full of Shift Podcast, After the First Marriage Podcast, and Eating Recovery Academy over at practiceofthepractice.com backslash network. Welcome to Behind the Bite Podcast. This podcast is about the real-life struggles women face with food, body image, and weight. We're here to help heal, inspire, and create better, healthier lives. Welcome. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for being here and listening to the show. I really do appreciate all of you for being here and all of you who rate, review, and subscribe to the show. You know, it's just about this time of year when I have an opportunity to decide if I'm going to continue with the podcast or not. And honestly, part of what helps me determine whether or not to do so is really about the feedback and all the information I get from all of you listeners, the messages, the questions, the comments. They really all do make a difference. And I want to be able to have guests and topics on here that are relevant and meaningful to all of you who are listening. So. People have asked me why I continue to record the podcast every week when it's really not something that's a source of income. And it also takes a lot of time away from my life and my practice. And the truth is that I want to continue to do whatever I can to help anyone out there who is struggling with an eating disorder, disordered eating, or body image issues. Because my hope is that through hearing other people's stories, you can feel less alone or even realize that you have an eating disorder and seek help. You know, I really hope to get information out there that's accurate and helps dispel the myths out there that are wrong and perpetuating toxic diet culture. So please keep the communication coming. Go to my website and use the new link I have to speak pipe and ask me a question, leave comments, and like I said, rate, review, and subscribe to the show because it all really matters. Okay, now that being said, let's get to today's show. Look, I know I say this often, but we really do have an amazing show and guest on for you today. Not only is our guest someone who is here to share information from both her personal perspective, but her professional perspective. Michelle Magot is an acoustic sound therapist that specializes in adult recovery of childhood trauma and eating disorders. She has recovered from a long-term relationship with bulimia herself, and I can't wait to get her on the show. Well, Michelle, welcome to the show. I'm really glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. So I know you have a quite amazing story and I am so grateful always when I have somebody on here who's willing to share, you know, their journey because, you know, as you and I were talking a little bit before we we got started here, um, it really has such an impact and it's so powerful when you hear somebody else's story, it helps you feel much less alone and you know, for anyone listening who maybe has no idea even that they're struggling, they might be thinking they're doing something normal with food or what they're doing is just not dieting correctly. Or, you know, they might hear something that on this podcast from somebody like yourself who's sharing and realizing, oh my gosh, like I need help. Um, I really appreciate you being on here and, and being willing to open up and share. Um, so saying that, um, you know, you, you started having struggles early on in your life. Um, and I'm just wondering what, what, how, what happened for you that you started to notice, okay, I'm not, uh, having a healthy relationship with food. I don't know
1: if I ever had a healthy relationship with food until much, much, much later in life. Um, I grew up in a pretty tumultuous household. I was also adopted at birth. Um so I never had uh you know I I wanted I wanted milk, right? Um I didn't want a bottle of milk. I wanted a boobie just like every every uh, child does. Um you know I didn't even get that. And I'm not making a correlation to that because I don't know, but personally, you know, I never felt um sated. You know, Um, But then coupled with a a pretty, I would say, violent and extremely emotionally abusive household, um, I never felt happy. You know, people will say, hey, wasn't there a moment in your childhood that you can go back to and just puts a smile on your face? And I don't have any. I I really don't. So um, the only pleasure that I was really allowed to have was food. and. As a pleasure, I wouldn't say that, you know, we didn't have good food in the house. It was mostly both of my parents, uh, adoptive parents worked. So, and, and my mother, she didn't want to cook and it was still kind of traditional. I, I grew up, uh, I was born in the 70s, you know. So, um, you know, mom was the one responsible for meals, even though she worked too. She didn't really enjoy that. So, um, it was mostly prepackaged, boxed, you know, foods, the types of foods that if, you know, if you've done any nutritional, studying and i'm sure you've, you've done a bunch. Um they don't really satisfy us. They don't have good nutrition. And then there was no love in the house at you know at all. I mean even between my parents. So um that that was kind of an icky situation, but if i needed a little pick me up, which was pretty often, i would eat. It wouldn't even have to be a sweet. We didn't have a lot of them in the house. I would just have more of you know, whatever normal foods that there were around, you know, uh, crackers or anything kind of starchy. And um, I found later in my practice that starchy foods and carbohydrates, and my favorite was um, heavy dairies, you know, whole milk and yogurts and ice cream, things like that. Cheese. Um, I found out sort of later that a lot of that is associated with um, anger which is um, in, the, you know, in the liver. And so when you hear about fatty liver and you find out someone's been eating a lot of dense dairy and a lot of carbohydrates, you'll, you'll see that leads to fatty liver. And so I think people often, not just me, would use foods to um, sort of cope with the feelings of anger that I wasn't really allowed to express. And as I, uh, as I grew up, um, I became heavy. You know, from eating that way, and at that time, I was the only child in my class that was heavy. You know, I think um, it's it's fairly common now. I think our foods are a lot different than how they were at that time. Um, but I would get singled out for that and told I was, you know, disgusting and fat and gross, and you know, all the, all the words that everybody knows. You know, I'm. I mean, I can think of a laundry list of them. So. I would get that same humiliation from my parents. You know, my father would call me a sausage, or you know, if he, if my, you know, my mom would say you're as fat as your dad. The funny, you know, not funny, but the ironic thing is, they were both very overweight. You know, they they also used foods to cope with their unexpressed emotions. They were very stoic, uh, very quiet. Um, talking about feelings was, you know, was not a good thing. So, um, you know, this went on and on, and all I really wanted was to just get out of that house. So um, when I was in high school, I went to public school, and everyone in, I think, 10th, maybe 11th grade, we all had to take the ASVAB, which at the time was the military aptitude test. They made everybody in school take this test. And I did really, really, really well on this test. So all these recruiters were calling me. And um, my parents weren't going to give me any money for college and we weren't poor enough for me to qualify for, you know, most of the scholarships. And I also worked, um, you know, after school, I wasn't in academics or any other types of programs that would allow me to like get a leg up into college. So it just wasn't on the radar. So I thought, okay, I'll I'll go do that. Somebody actually wants me. So um, so I enlisted. And, um, you know, even though I was a little overweight, they still took me in. I had to diet a lot to, um, to get in there. So the last like month before I went off to basic training, I had really deprived myself because I just, I just really wanted to get out of that house. And that type of, um, uh, discipline wasn't something that I typically had. So, you know, that just shows how desperate I was to get out of there. So I got out and I got to basic training and this is the first time that I had three actual meals a day. And they were pretty good like the breakfast was cooked for us you could ask for the eggs the way that you wanted and they had all the condiments um it was great i loved i loved going to the you know meal time unless we were getting the you know the mres when we were doing field days but it, it was nice and it was the best tasting food i'd ever had if that tells you you know what i was growing up with um so i put on weight you know, some of it was muscle because we we did athletic training every day and I did okay in the athletic training. I wasn't a fast runner, but like I was strong. And so I was able to, you know, to make it through. But when we got all done, um, I think this was eight or nine weeks that I'd done the basic training. They gave us our clothes back, you know, our, our civilian clothes. We got all of our luggage and everything back. And, <laughs> I couldn't get my, I couldn't even get them up. I can get my jeans up, let alone you know zipped or anything. And I and I had no idea because the, the BDUs, the the dress, like the, the regular casual you know camo outfits that they give you, they're really comfortable and you and they're adjustable, and you have no idea what size you are. So. um that was pretty scary because when I, you know, we we had to put our civilian clothes on to travel or it was expected that we would to go on to the next step, which was um, AIT or the occupational training that they send you to so you, you learn your military job. And my um, occupational training was pretty long. Um, I want to say it was nine months or 10 months. You know, some of them are as short as like eight weeks and then they can go a little bit over a year. So I had a very long time. I was at Fort Augusta, Georgia and still getting these great meals. The food was even better at AIT um, and I was just, I was putting on weight and they'd weigh us in every month and I had gone up, you know, significantly like higher than I'd ever weighed before. And they, I had, they pulled me aside and said, listen, you have to do something about this or, you know, you're going to be out. Wow! Oh. And that's when I started with bulimia. That was a nineteen-year affair I had with bulimia, and I think I was—I was just turned eighteen at that point. Yeah.
0: So they had these requirements that you had to meet there. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh yeah, they had um, height and weight requirement. Well, they had a minimum height requirement, but there was a weight requirement associated with, you know, every maybe inch and a half or two inches i can't remember exactly but there was a range of acceptable weight and they had different charts for males and females at that time i don't i don't know what they do today so there's also a physical fitness requirement too um and i was able to like you know i i did great on the um you know the the core the core work and the strength work but running like i would always just barely you know make it it wasn't kind of wasn't my scene the running. Um, But because I was passing, they kind of gave me a little bit more of a, um, a little more leeway because I would meet the physical fitness requirements in terms of the test. But there was a, there was a weight level where I just went so far beyond. They're like, okay, you, you can't keep this up. It's time to, you know, get back down into the scale.
0: Just so sad because you were meeting the criteria. You were obviously able to do all the things, how sad.
1: Yeah. But I, you know, I probably was on track to get to a point where I couldn't keep it up. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't healthy anyway. You know, I was already having a problem. And while this did trigger an eating disorder, I kind of had one to begin with. I wasn't, you know, just eating because I was hungry. I was just eating because it was like the most pleasure that I would get out of an entire day. I didn't know how to have healthy relationships, I'd never seen one. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people that um, were there with me, you know, we were mostly, I think we were all enlisted. Mm -hmm. And everybody was, you know, trying to get away from something. I mean, for a lot of people that were there, this was like the best opportunity that they could possibly have. And if you think about that, you think about all the options you have in life as as a teenager or young adult, if the military is the best possible option that you have like gosh you know that's that's it's not the worst you know situation in life but it's probably not the one that most people would wish for when they're growing up most people who want to be in the military when they grow up it's because they had you know a family figure who who did it that they admired often um and a lot of times those people were officers so they went to college first you know they didn't they didn't go in there straight away
0: so this started your trajectory and your, like you said, your relationship with bulimia and did anyone catch on in the military? No, not at all. Okay. Nope. Okay. So my goodness. Okay. And for anyone listening, who knows what that whole experience is like, it's not, I mean, it's, it's hell, right? Um. So 19 years. So, how long were you in the military for?
1: Uh not that long. I had gone in as a reservist. Okay. Because when you when you go to um the processing station. Well, when you go to the to basically pick out your military occupation, they they give you. I didn't know this at the time, but they give you options, and often those options are based on the bonuses that the recruiters get. And so they, you know, you don't get to see all the options. Mm-hmm. Um, and the options that they gave me for full time were just not as good in terms of like what could I do with those skills later in life. Uh, they would just weren't as good as the reserve skills. So I was gone for. It was a little over a year and then came back and lived with my parents. And having had that break um, and then coming back, you know, you might think like, oh, well, you got to see some, you got to make some friends and you got to see some good relationships. And so coming back, you must have noticed that like your family was maybe a little off. I didn't see a lot of good relationships in the military either. So I still didn't know. I thought my problem was me. It's what everybody told me. Um, but I will tell you that the bulimia was something that um, my parents noticed at home, my mother noticed. And her way of noticing it was that um, it was a very old home, um, like a late 1800s, it had been a carriage house and then reconverted into a little house. And it had you know, two-pronged electric and had terrible plumbing. So the toilet wouldn't flush all the way. <laughs> And so she would notice, but her only issue with it was that I was making a mess in the bathroom.
0: (laughs) It's absurd. Sorry. I know listeners can't see your, your face. Maybe you can't even see your own when you said that, but, um, yeah, I, wow. If that was her only problem with it, that, wow, that says speaks volumes.
1: I mean, as an adult. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to speak over you. But No, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> As an adult, um, I know now that she had no ability to express her emotions. None, none whatsoever, you know, other than anger or dismay or, you know, all the negative things. And I'm sure that that's what it was like when she grew up, you know, in, in her family household. I'd asked her about it, but she wasn't really able to mm-hmm. to tell me you know, Hey, what was it like when you growing up with grandma and grandpa? She said, Oh, you know, it was, um, it was, it was fine. <laughs> so I, you know, it's, it's kind of sad to not know how to express emotions. And I don't know how I became a product of that household because <laughs> I'm so
0: different. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, that thought actually just went through my mind. Because <laughs> <laughs> wondering. Okay. So you're, you're back in this obviously toxic environment where emotions are not expressed and I mean that speaks volumes to why you turned to bulimia right and yeah so if you let's fast forward a little bit here so you um obviously um have turned your life around and are doing some amazing and wonderful things and that's more of what i want to get to now. I mean, I don't know if you want to share anything with the audience about like how you kind of kind of broke up with your eating disorder and how that all kind of came about or not. That's I'll leave that to you.
1: But um. oh, yeah, I'm happy to. Um I had all sorts of relationship problems and I would say work problems really, you know, going into my adult life. Um I would have relationships with I chose actually really good couple of really good men to be in relationships with, um, really good people, but I wasn't capable of expressing my emotions in a healthy way. I didn't know how to. And so when I was given that opportunity, I would freeze or I would, you know, kind of reject that. And they would notice my issues with food and and ask me about it in a caring way. And it was so terrifying that somebody could see me or could see that thing about me that, you know, I would ruin those relationships you Know it's just a kind of a serial problem, and at work I was um pretty bright, uh, definitely capable. Um, but when someone would want to give me feedback to say, Hey, this is great, but could you change this thing? or, um, you know, I didn't really like the way that you did this, but you never did it before, so like, let's talk about how we can improve that. These are like healthy ways of expressing, you know, feedback, but I didn't know how to handle that. I'd only ever experienced very negative feedback. And the way that I would deal with it was I would either just tune out completely, I didn't even hear it, I would just, you know, leave, <laughs> felt like I was going to the moon. Um, or I would turn into my mother. And I would respond in ways that I thought were appropriate, because it's how I saw someone respond to Constructive feedback. And so I thought that's what you do. And I got into my kind of mid 20s and realized, like, oh, the pattern that keeps happening, the only consistent um, ingredient there is me. And so I started to look for help. And um, it was, it was kind of, um, it was a good time to look for help in that, like, insurance was starting to cover therapy was great, um, but it was hard for me to find a therapist that was equipped to deal with all of this stuff that I had. And um, a lot of the programs with the therapists that I would get recommended for, um, I, I wouldn't even disclose the eating disorder. You know, I would I would talk about anxiety in order to get um, help. And then I would disclose the eating disorder once I was in the privacy of the room with the therapist. And most of them just weren't, they weren't equipped to, to deal with it. They weren't comfortable. They would, you know, say that I would need to be referred out. But then when I would look at what my options were to be referred out, there were very few options that allowed me to continue to live independently and, you know, work my full-time job. They wanted, you know, inpatient programs, typically just like a, small amount of it was covered and the rest would be out of pocket And it's like how do you do that right you know if you're not working so i just sort of stopped talking about it in therapy and i would just talk about anxiety and um i got some medications for that and i went through uh this went over a number of years you know um cbt or cognitive behavioral therapy dialectical behavior therapy um I didn't do EFT, but I've had some clients that have done that. That was kind of interesting. But I went through that and I sort of got, I got sort of better in that um, it wouldn't happen as often. I developed much better relationship skills. So I was like capable of having good relationships. I was doing better at work. But whenever there was too much stress in my life, I would go back to those old behaviors. They were just so familiar. It was so easy to slip right back into it. And it wasn't until I was in my early thirties that I actually found a therapist that like really could tell what was going on and was able to, to help me further. So I'm going to go into that because, um, we did a ton of work together. We did EMDR, um, I started to realize like, gosh, all that stuff that happened to me earlier in life was really bad. Mm-hmm. It wasn't my fault, but I still have to you know, live with it, right? I'm, I'm this mature adult now and I have to deal with it. What do I do? How do I clean up this mess? Um, I didn't even tell her about the eating disorder until I'd been with her for maybe three years. Wow. It was just hard. Um, but once I was done uh, working with her, I was pretty good, but I would still feel the triggers you know, I'd still feel that calling to go and um, kind of set up a binge session. You know, and I'd find those triggers at the weirdest moments. Wouldn't seem like there was that much stress in my life, but I just couldn't see the forest for the trees. You know, I couldn't see it. Um, and it wasn't until later, when I did some additional work, um, edits, and sound healing, that I was able to kind of break up some of those like almost memorized emotions it was like it was comfortable so familiar to be feeling those feelings of bulimia which to me are like shame you know and guilt and um gosh like disgust and definitely a lot of anger it was very easy to go back into that and I couldn't figure out what do I have to be angry about? I've got this great partner, I have a nice home. Um, my job is, you know, pretty good. What, what is there to be angry about? And it was just that stuff that even though I intellectually dealt with it, it just kept following me around, you know? Yeah. So, um, but I, I did manage to get to the point where I had stopped doing it, you know, it just got less often and less often and less often. Then finally there was this point where like there was enough space between the trigger and my awareness of it that i could stop i mean i still feel the pull mm-hmm. sometimes but i'm just like i'm not going there i know i know where that goes i don't i don't want to go back to it so it's been 8 years now congratulations yeah That's
0: thanks big. not yeah. having that awareness like not doing it
1: but I mean, it, you know, I still have that awareness, and I I see, I see my it's it's usually women that I'll see I'll see my sisters, mm-hmm. you know, at the store. Like there's certain there's certain things where I just know, and I just I want to reach out to them, but I also know how I would have felt or how I would have responded at that time, and it you know it's just not my not my business to do it, but I my heart goes out.
0: Well, this is you reaching out to lots of people right now, right?
1: So absolutely, yeah.
0: Okay. And, you know, to speak to kind of where you're at now, you're, sounds like you reach a lot of people in the work you're doing. Um, I do.
1: Um, it's been really, really fulfilling. I mean, is it okay if I talk about what it is that I, I
0: do? Oh, yeah, I was just going to ask, because um, you do something that I think most people will be like, what What exactly is that? And um, <laughs> yeah. so if you yeah, could maybe talk about how you got started in what you're doing and what it is that you do, it'd be great.
1: Sure. I mean, my history, I was working in, in technology, so I I didn't really, it was, it wasn't bad. I didn't mind it. And I liked the people I worked with, but mostly I was just there for the paycheck. You know, it was pretty good. Um, I didn't feel fulfilled, you know, but I didn't know what else to do. And, um, I had done so much work to get through my coping mechanisms. You know, um, I mean, it took so many years and so much. It just, it just took it took so long. I think most people can't hold out that long. So I was trying to figure out like, what, what are there? Are there any other ways to deal with this that don't take quite so long or that would speed up the traditional, you know, the traditional model? So if you're already going to talk therapy and doing CBT and maybe EMDR, if if you've got trauma, if you're doing all that, maybe taking a medication, like does it still have to take so many years? Does it? No. Um, and I had heard a lecture from a woman called Eileen McCusick, who had a modality called biofield tuning. This was, in, I think, maybe 2015, sometime around there. And at that time, I was looking to relocate. And I took this long, I was in the Bay Area, and I was looking to relocate out of there. And I took this long trip. I think I took like six weeks off, and I drove all around the United States. And I stopped at Mount Shasta, went into this store, and I hadn't heard her, um, hadn't heard her lecture yet, but I went into a store and they had these tuning forks and I was just intrigued by them. I mean, um, I grew up with a lot of like, music was like a, another escape for me. So it was kind of interesting. And I bought a couple books and, um, sound therapies, healing. And I bought a couple sets of tuning forks and just played with them. I didn't really know what I was doing, but then I heard the lecture from Eileen and I just thought, Oh, that sounds amazing. And I followed her. Um, it for a long time, and she had done this um, in the book that she wrote that came out around that time. She talked about her own eating disorder, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> somebody totally gets it and um, understands how to deal with coping mechanisms." That's literally what what she does, and what what her modality is biofield tuning is. Um, it takes tuning forks into the area around our body, so um, there are some. Um, treatments that are done that can be done on the body where you hold a tuning fork on on the body but most of the practitioners do the sessions virtually you know over the internet and so we're not touching the person. Um, and what these forks do is they find stuck energy which is in the human biofield and I can break that down in a in a moment to explain how that works. And it finds that stuck energy. And when we when we find it, locate it with a tuning fork. So I have one here. So if I take one and bring it into someone's field, the the spaces in the field that are fine, um, there's no resistance. The fork, you know, makes the sound. I hit it and it makes a sound. That sound is very coherent. It's a very like structured wave, very consistent. And as soon as they run into resistance, There's like this vibration in the fork, like in the handle that I can feel, sense. There are different types of vibrations. Different emotions have almost like a signature. So I can, over time, I kind of picked up on the language of, you know, what does depression sound like or anger or fear or anxiety? What do they sound like or feel like? The forks have over and undertones when they run into a dissonant frequency. So um, there's a sound that will come up. I could play it for you. I don't know if it'll sound. If it'll sound very good, but if I do just the neutral sound, you'll just hear the basic sound of the fork. And then if I bring it into my own energy, I'm you know, I'm a little excited right now because I'm talking about something that's personal. I bet that we would hear some fear or anxiety a little bit in in an overtone there. So when we find that, this co- coherent tone breaks up the incoherent tone. And it takes energy to hold that incoherence in the field. So it releases that energy. So somebody who's got a lot of negative beliefs, negative ideas, they're more tired and more weighed down and they start to look heavy. And um, it's literally because holding all of that negativity takes energy. And so this breaks that up and releases that energy. And if you can, you know, if you're sensitive enough to see auras, you can actually see the light when it's released. It's very subtle, but you can kind of see it. And the fork acts like a magnet in the field and we bring that to the body and then that person takes it back and by breaking up that that structure of incoherence the person's able to digest that emotion they get another chance to sort of go through it but in a safe environment um, there's no need to talk about our stories we don't have to hang you know we don't have to rehash it and that's what therapy's for so you know talk therapy so in you know, a biofield tuning session your thoughts or experiences are your own. You can speak about them, but it's not required at all. So for someone who feels really shy about that, they're, they're able to experience it without having to go into the story. And then um, eventually that energy just it cycles through and it has an opportunity to that to go back out into the field and be harmonious For something long standing, like an eating disorder, it takes, you know, it takes a little while to be able to break that down. Um, it really depends on the self beliefs, self-worth that someone has about themselves. And if they're working seriously with a team, if they've got a good team of physicians, um, therapists helping them, they're usually able to get through it. Nobody ever comes out of it, you know, worse. There's always some lessening or feeling of lightness, like a lessening of that coping mechanism, the you know, the space between the experience and the trigger it gets a little bit bigger every time. So it's it's a cumulative effect, and um, if it's okay, I can take a few minutes to explain, you know, why why that works. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, thank you. So, uh, when I was in science class, I learned about the three states of matter, mm-hmm. you know, solid, liquid, and gas. And um, if I had gone on to post secondary physics, I would have learned about plasma which is the fourth state of matter. And that gets into, I think maybe the easiest way for me to break this down is to talk about the Earth's um, system because the Earth itself has a magnetic field and it is a macrocosm of the microcosm of our own human biofield that each person has. A shape like a torus or a toroid, this is kind of a donut shape. If you sliced an apple in half, it kind of looks like that. And, on the inside of the apple skin, so to speak, that's the ionosphere. And then the outside is a magnetosphere. And there's a double layer membrane that holds that all together. And within that ionosphere, there is um, a resonance. The earth has standing coherent waves. It's about 7.83 Hertz, which would be the Schumann resonance. Um, Sometimes it's called the heartbeat of the earth, but that is the standard wave. Every individual has their own standing wave, like their own, you know, things are good. It's like natural frequency, everybody has. that. And when there's incoherence in the field, those are the stuck memories, the trauma, there can even be things from the DNA um, that can show up in there or things from uh, what was going on, like right at the edge of the field, what was going on with mom and dad around the time that we were conceived there's a lot of information in the field about that so we can even sort of inherit i don't know that's really dna so to speak but just energetically we can sort of inherit that you know vibration of i think what parent isn't kind of stressed before a child is born you know there's a lot to think about there so we all take on some amount of stress in life but when there is a trauma like an accident or um you know, abuse of any kind. Um, you know, any kind of shock to the system, if we aren't able to digest that appropriately and file it away, it can hang with us. And especially if we're younger, um, you know, children don't always have the ability to deal with stuff. They're young and they haven't, you know, they don't have the maturity yet to to process some of that. So a lot of people have some things in early childhood um, it's typically trauma that shows up the people that are on my table, typically, whether they're thinking about it or not, we typically find something, you know, and I'll find something and I can say, gosh, you know, there's something around age seven and it feels like intense anxiety. Uh, I don't know if you can, you know, can you hear the tone? You know, it's like, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> that, that's, that sounds like anxiety. Um, I don't know if anything was going on there. But if there was, you know, if there are any memories coming up, that's that's just what I'm running into right now. And then I work on that area until it dissipates, and then I can move that energy into the field. And, um, you know, sometimes just a couple, you know, two or three sessions is enough for people to kind of go on their merry way. My experience with eating disorders, the people who have disclosed them um, hasn't been so fast, but there's always been some improvement with the trigger response. That's interesting. Yeah. I hope that's helpful.
0: No, that is. I was just, my head's kind of going in all different directions <laughs> about how helpful that could be. Like you said, with the team approach and helping people just energetically move. And maybe they couldn't in, you know, just with talk therapy, You know, especially if they kind of clam up and aren't ready to open up and talk
1: yet. Yeah. And I think, um, my experience with eating disorder treatment was that it was focused on the eating disorder. That was my experience, and this may have changed. You know, and it's been it's been a number of years since then, so this may have improved. But um, the eating disorder wasn't the problem. I knew it was not good for me. I even developed um, mitral valve prolapse. You know, I'm pretty sure I wasn't born with it. You know, but it right. developed, and I had some you know, incidents over the years. Um, so I knew it wasn't good for me. It was more that I didn't have another way to cope with whatever it was that I was feeling. I didn't have healthy ways to express or, you know, kind of what's the right word discharge, some of the intensity that that I would feel and I, I can't say that that's everybody's story. I don't know. I, I know everybody's journey is completely different, but I know that the, the, um, eating disorder treatment that I experienced just didn't really address the root cause of my, my problems. Yeah.
0: I would say that eating disorder is not the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. So yeah, <laughs> I think So I, you know, I've talked about on the podcast before. Really trying to find a specialist because I think a lot of times the behaviors are more the focus um, than really what's fueling the symptoms. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, the triggers could be something as I mean, I I experienced a lot of triggers actually switching jobs because I had this consistent for years. You know, a couple decades basically. I had this consistent paycheck and you know, full benefits and I didn't have any experience running a business and what was going to happen. And I, you know, experienced those triggers coming up of, whoa, you know, I felt insecure. How are we going to pay the bills? You know, how long will it take for things, to, you know, for, for the money to start coming in? Um, what if I'm not good enough? You know, I had all of these, you know, I think it's not unusual to have those thoughts, but then how do you deal with it? And I, I noticed when I was at the supermarket, you know, I, I would start to, um, I would, I think for me because I had done it for so many years, um, I would see the old, the old foods that I would pick, and I'd start to go, oh, okay, no, <laughs> no, okay, that that's not our way of expressing it. But you know, to this day, I still, I would still have those, um, the thoughts, you know, the the or fears. Fears are normal, but I didn't have a healthy way of dealing with them earlier now now I do that's really the thing that has well it's two things I have a way of dealing with them and I have more space in between experiencing them and you know the processing instead of reacting immediately
0: which is the key I think having that awareness and knowing what's happening and then being able to be more in charge and saying okay I'm going to choose something different rather than a Automatic reaction of engaging in the yeah. disorder. Right? So, what a you know, just is so eye opening. I haven't had anybody on here to just talk about this, um, and I think people listening are probably going, "Wow, this is just so new!" Right? Um, <laughs> you know, I I've actually had um, somebody do the the forks, the sound forks once, and I felt like. It was the most calming thing. I always said, like it was the most calming thing I've experienced more than a massage. <laughs> it was
1: yes, it can it can be, and people fall asleep all the time, yeah. which on, on the on the phone or on on a Zoom can be a little problematic because like you know. Hello. Can you, <laughs> like it, it will still work, but it works a lot better if you connect the um, what I'm feeling. There's usually a body sensation when I when I find something. It'll say, "Hey, you noticing anything?" And then they might say, "Oh yeah, I'm remembering something," or it's making you know I'm feeling a tingle, and it's some you know my shoulder or something. And um, when they make that connection, it usually is more beneficial but I, I can still do it if they're asleep, but I, I prefer to stay awake, but even I, even I do it, you know, I, I still, I still get, um, tuned, mm-hmm. you know, almost weekly. I'm because I, you know, I'm able to trade with other practitioners and I, I still fall asleep from time to time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, imagining people who want to know more about you um maybe even go to your website I know you have a website maybe even contact you work with you so how can they find you sure um
1: so i'm on instagram if you want to ask some questions first that you know I, I can understand having questions um you can find me on instagram as the practical catalyst and that's also my website, thepracticalcatalyst.com. Um, you can book online or um, there's a contact form in there. So if you have some questions for me, that'll just send an email to me directly and we can start a conversation. If you definitely want to try it out, that's great. You can book online. But um, I wouldn't be surprised if some folks have questions because when you when you see the pictures up there, I show all of my tools and you'll see you know, the forks and you'll see a crystal and you might think like, okay, what kind of wacky stuff we doing here i use the crystal actually as an amplifier so if we run into something sticky i'll hold the fork right up to the crystal and it just amplifies it so it's a little more powerful i'm not uh doing any spells or anything like that
0: <laughs> awesome yeah all right well i will put all of that in the show notes as well so people will have direct links to you as well so thank you thank you so much any last final
1: words before we end yeah, you know, um, if you're going through any kind of eating disorder, I, you're not alone. I know it's hard to talk about. Um, it can be embarrassing and there can be feelings of you know shame or guilt that go with it. You are not alone, not at all. <laughs> um, not at all. And um, you know, don't be afraid and don't give up on yourself. It's okay to ask for help. And uh, it's okay to learn new ways of of dealing with things. Everybody experiences discomfort. And the only thing that's different among us, you know, with our issues is how we deal with those, those feelings of discomfort.
0: Very well said in such true words. Again, Michelle, thank you so, so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you.